Hello. Uh, good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. I'm Matt Rojanski, director of the Wilson Center's Kennan Institute. Thank you all for joining us for this special event today. Uh, in 2014, the Kennan Institute launched the Solzhenitsyn Initiative to translate major works by Nobel laureate Alexander Solzhenitsyn for the first time into English. The effort was made possible through a generous donation by Drew Guff, who was amazed to learn that Solzhenitsyn's memoir from his years living in the United States had never been translated into English. Four years after the launch, the translation of Between Two Millstones, Book One, Sketches of Exile, 1974 to 1978, became available. That was October of 2018, thanks to the University of Notre Dame Press. Shortly after the launch of the initiative, we also received a donation to translate into English for the first time the as yet untranslated volumes of Solzhenitsyn's Red Wheel Saga, his history of Russia leading up to the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917, and which he largely wrote during precisely those years of exile in the United States. Today, in a sense coming full circle, it's my great pleasure to be joined by Ignat Solzhenitsyn and Dan Mahoney to discuss Between Two Millstones, Book Two, Exile in America, 1978 to 1994, which has just been recently published by the University of Notre Dame Press. Book two details and concludes Solzhenitsyn's literary memoirs of his years in the West after his forced exile from the USSR. To purchase a copy of the book, please visit the University of Notre Dame Press website. Finally, we do have a discount code for attendees today, which was in the email sent to those who have registered. If you didn't receive it, please email kennan at wilsoncenter.org and we'll be happy to get it to you. Uh, throughout the program, that same email address can be used for any questions, kennan at wilsoncenter.org, or you can tweet the questions at Kennan Institute or post them on our Facebook page. And please include your name and affiliation when you're sending in questions. It will make it more likely that the question will get to me and I will read it out. Um, let me introduce both of our speakers today. And then what I'm gonna do is just sort of conduct a a back and forth discussion Q&A. I may read a couple of passages from the book uh, and we'll discuss and we'll see as audience questions are coming in uh, how we uh, move through the hour, but I'll definitely make sure to get to audience questions as well. Um, so first, of course, Ignat Solzhenitsyn, uh, who reprises his role uh, discussing his father's life and work uh, with me. I'm very, very pleased to have Ignat here. Um, he is recognized as one of today's most gifted musicians on both sides of the baton. Uh, enjoying an active career as both a conductor and pianist. His lyrical and poignant interpretations have won him critical acclaim worldwide. He's the principal guest conductor of the Moscow Symphony Orchestra and conductor laureate of the Chamber Orchestra of Philadelphia, uh, and has recently led symphonies of Baltimore, Buffalo, Cincinnati, Dallas, Indianapolis, Milwaukee, Nashville, Phoenix, Seattle, and Toronto, the Nordwestdeutsche Philharmonie, the Czech National Symphony, as well as many of the major orchestras in Russia, including the Marinsky Orchestra and the St. Petersburg Philharmonic. Recent seasons, his extensive touring schedule in the United States and Europe uh, included concerto performances with numerous major orchestras and collaborations with distinguished conductors. A winner of the Avery Fisher Career Grant, Ignat Solzhenitsyn serves on the faculty of the Curtis Institute of Music. He has been featured on many radio and television specials, including CBS Sunday Morning, and ABC's Nightline. Next, Dan Mahoney holds the Augustine Chair uh, in Distinguished Scholarship at Assumption College, where he's taught since 1986. He specializes in French political philosophy, anti-totalitarian thought, especially Solzhenitsyn, and the intersection of religion and politics. He is the author or editor of 12 books, including Alexander Solzhenitsyn, The Ascent from Ideology, The Conservative Foundations of the Liberal Order, the Other Solzhenitsyn, Telling the Truth About a Misunderstood Writer and Thinker, and The Idol of Our Age, How the Religion of Humanity Subverts Christianity. He is executive editor of Perspectives on Political Science and book review editor of Society. In 1999, he was awarded the Prix Raymond Aron. So that is the introduction to our uh, distinguished guest today. I want to jump right in, if we can, to talking about the book. And I, I feel, in a way, the most appropriate place to start uh, is from Solzhenitsyn's whole purpose, uh, the necessity, if you will, uh, of his being in exile in America. And uh, I want to read from a, a note in the book uh, at, uh, at page 50 uh, that Solzhenitsyn had written in 1979. Uh, he said, gradually over the years, by 1978 to 79, the true meaning of my new situation and my new task have become clearer. This is my task, to uphold the history of Russia in undistorted form 
and to protect Russia's future past. The age-old Bolshevik enemies are now joined by hostile pseudo-intellectuals of both East and West, and it appears even more powerful circles, which is why it turns out that here in America, I am not genuinely free, but again caged. My freedom is in the fact that my home is not being searched and I can write anything I want for future use. But when it comes to publishing my, even my notes, there is resistance. I find this absolutely fascinating. This is a man who is tortured in a sense when he's imprisoned in the Soviet system by the Bolsheviks, and yet is also tortured when he's free from that system in the West, can think, can write, can say whatever he wants. So uh, Ignat, would, would you like to comment on that, the kind of the, his fundamental thinking about where he was, where he found himself in exile? I think the question of exile itself is something not to be underestimated, uh, not to be passed over lightly. Uh, I, from ancient times, exile is a condition or punishment, very frequently a punishment, of course, that was considered second only to death itself. And so even in our modern age, perhaps a little bit less so now in the age of uh, 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 global, the global village and uh, to which I assume we'll, we will return at some point after, after COVID, uh, but certainly still in, in the times of the 70s and 80s, when the Iron Curtain was very real, uh, and for Solzhenitsyn specifically, when his banishment from the Soviet Union was, should have been forever. And he should have had no expectation to return, although he divined uh, intuitively that it might happen. And it did, of course, eventually happen. So first of all, the, the notion that exile is very difficult, if it's not voluntary, it's very difficult for, for people to endure. And I think Solzhenitsyn was no exception, strong as he was, uh, the, the condition of exile was complicated. Uh, secondly, he was certainly surprised by the uh, virulence uh, and the uh, dishonorable nature of uh, some of the uh, criticism that he uh, faced in, in, in uh, the Western media. Uh, he, of course, knew and assumed and welcomed that he was joining, if you will, a free uh, society. But uh, he expected, therefore, that he would be able to speak his mind uh, as freely as he wished. That was one of the profound differences, surely, between the millstone uh, of, of the Soviet Union, of the KGB, of the totalitarian system, and then the free system in the West and specifically in America. And one famous example of that of course, is the Harvard Address, where he spoke um, perhaps not carefully enough, perhaps uh, with, with, uh, uh, with an excess of zeal or passion or, or uh, attempt to convince, but he never imagined that uh, people might, he thought people would agree or people would disagree. But the notion that people would condemn his very right to say those things, particularly as a guest uh, in America, and that guests have no place uh, speaking out of turn, and guests have no speak leveling, excuse me, have no place leveling such criticisms. And shouldn't he know better? He's, he's come from, from the Soviet Union. So all those angles, uh, they left a profound and, and, and uh, uh, understandably negative impression. Uh, Ignat, thank you. I, I, wanna, I wanna keep this theme on the table, but I wanna add uh, and you'll have to bear with me. I just, I can't resist reading some of these lines from the book. Uh, I wanna add to it and, and invite Dan to comment. Um, uh, shortly after this, uh, your father, uh, Ignat, wrote, the insane difficulty of the situation is that I can't ally myself with the communists, our country's butchers, but I can't ally myself with my country's enemies either, clearly referring to exactly the, the, the uh, exile in which he finds himself. And all the time I have no home ground to support me. The world is big, but there's nowhere to go. Um, this, this sense that it's not just that he's in exile, but he's sort of uh, in opposition to everyone, uh, including to the people around him who are giving him succor and offering him, you know, support in, in some cases, the most generous offers you could imagine, you know, take citizenship, take money, etc. Uh, I want to bring Dan into the conversation also. Uh, do you want to comment on that, Dan? Yeah, I do think that's a very capital passage. Um, I, I, there's a context here, though, and the context is 
uh, in the five years or so, six years since uh, Solzhenitsyn's forced exile to the West on February 1374, he had come to the conclusion that many of his natural allies in the West um, did not consider Russia to be the first and principal victim of Bolshevism or communist totalitarianism, that uh, together with many prominent um, Russian emigres from the third wave of emigration, they saw the source of the Soviet tragedy or the source of communist totalitarianism in, you know, in, in, in Russian messianism and the Russian national tradition and in czarism, but anything but uh, a Marxist-Leninism that posed a grave threat to humanity as such. And um, so as he speaks about that when he gave his famous addresses to the AFL-CIO in the summer at the invitation of George Meany in the summer of 75, he was really, you know, calling for a broad alliance of the of, of the dissident communities in the east, of the of the of the subjugated Russian people, of the of the citizens and statesmen in the Western democracies, and I think in the in the in, in ensuing five year period, Solzhenitsyn uh, uh, came to the conclusion that uh, many in the West, and by the way, he had uh, natural allies whom he greatly appreciated. Uh, but he, he, he came to the conclusion that many of them uh, systematically conflated and confused historic Russia uh, with, uh, uh, with uh, what he called the Soviet dragon. And he wrote, a, he wrote a, a, I think, a very important article in, I think, in 1980 for Foreign Affairs on misconceptions about Russia imperil America. And of course, this to added to all this were these really grotesque and systematic distortions of his thought. You know, Solzhenitsyn called for uh, self-limitation, the end of empire. Yanis Sapiets interviewed him in 1979 for the BBC Russian service and asked him, how do you perceive Russia's future? A thousand years of recuperation. You know, and yet Solzhenitsyn was presented and, uh, you know, Solzhenitsyn was writing about the importance of building democracy from the ground up and all of that. You have some beautiful passages in both volumes to that effect. And yet, you know, he was presented in, even by Slavis, you know, Richard Pipes, you know, said he, he was uh, channeling the spirit of Pobodonetsov, you know, and, uh, or people would compare him to Ni Nicholas I, orthodoxy, autocracy, nationalism, when he said in the, uh, the, the, letter to the Soviet leaders, he asked no special privileges for Christianity, but he thought Christianity was essential to the healing of the Russian nation and soul. So there was, uh, um, there was a sense, I mean, look, uh, uh, at the very end of the book, Solzhenitsyn goes to Western Europe. He has his triumphal visits with old friends, a major and productive and thoughtful several hour interview on French TV, a meeting with the Pope, his great address on the, uh, on the bicentennial of the French Revolution, the Vendée, a great philosophical speech at the International Academy of Philosophy in the States. He's persuaded to go on uh, 60 Minutes. And the first thing that uh, Mike Wallace, the uh, famed journalist, says to him are, are you a freak, a monarchist, and an anti-Semite? So that was the setting. You had a very different reaction to Solzhenitsyn in France and in many other European countries. And he felt like his work got an honest hearing and not this tendency. You know, you know it's like the, you know, uh, Russianists love, you know, you're either a Westernizer or a Slavophile. But, you know, Solzhenitsyn gave this interview when he went to Japan. He was at the uh, Tokyo airport and he said, I've never even seen a book by a Slavophile. I've never touched one. I've never read one, you know, but there was this pigeonholing. Not, and that wasn't necessarily of evil intent. It's what uh, people do because they're lazy, but uh, but there was but there was true malevolence. There was uh, systematic distortions of his thought uh, uh, by people in both East and West, and um, um, and I think it changed Solzhenitsyn's view, where he saw natural allies against communism. He came to see people who may quite rightly see the evils of communism, but who are not well disposed even to a moderate 
free, self-limiting Russia. And that, uh, that led to a, a change of orientation, I think. Uh, you know, I want to stay for just just a minute or two more on this on this topic of his milieu in the West, but in particular in the United States. I have to admit, uh, Ignat, I was I was really surprised um, at how um, persecuted he seemed to feel in a couple of different respects. One, as as Dan has I think very correctly analyzed, um, he he took intellectual issue with the, what he called the, the puffed up American Sovietologist professors, a monstrous category of Western science. I mean, he really, really disliked the idea that there was sort of a study of the Soviet Union masquerading as a study of Russia. But then even those who, who you know, I know personally for a fact, deeply and passionately loved Russia, loved, you know, the real Russia, loved Russian history, were steeped in it, uh, like Jim Billington uh, or George Kennan, you, you occasionally kind of get this disdain, uh, and I can never quite tell uh, wh where and how uh, Solzhenitsyn defined the kind of category of people other than himself, to be quite frank, who really understood what Russia was. Um, you know, you were with him, you know, you, you heard his deepest thoughts and feelings on this. How, how would you define it? Well, uh, first of all, someone like James Billington, uh, a great man of letters, a great thinker, a great lover of Russia, uh, of course, does, does not fit any of these categories, certainly not in Solzhenitsyn's mind. And, and I think uh, was a rare creature in this, in this sense, probably in many, many ways. Uh, and, uh, but certainly for the purposes of our discussion, in the sense that he did not conflate the Soviet Union and Russia in the way that it seemed to my father and uh, it seems to me uh, 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 today in a different context that uh, so many so many experts do. Uh, and of course, we live in a time when we're constantly told, listen to the experts, uh, and that the experts in any given field will tell us exactly what's right and what's wrong. And on a certain surface level, that makes sense. Well, then during the Cold War, what were the experts on the Soviet Union telling, telling the American public? Uh, they, they were uh, effectively saying uh, more or less uh, with some variations on a very narrow theme, which is that uh, Russia has which Russia has always been uh, anti-democratic. Russia has always been enslaved. Russia has always been a danger. Russia is a bear. Uh, the Soviet version is is uh, menacing, and we always need to be uh, on our guard, more or less, more or less a version of that. Now, the part of it. That, that's, that suggested that the Soviet Union was a great menace, those who were at least would admit that, of course, were right on target. And I, I don't think there's any debate about that uh, at least among reasonable people anymore, or never should have been. Uh, but uh, Solzhenitsyn felt uh, something that is unusual, probably for many authors or for many people, he took attacks uh, on Russia personally. He really did. So I think that for him, an attack or a, a falsehood um, if you will, being told or spread about Russia was just as uh, uh, wounding uh, as uh, perhaps uh, some of the uh, crazy and uh, falsehoods spread about him that uh, Professor Mahoney just uh, outlined. Uh, so um, yeah, so that's that's really that's really the issue. He wanted, he felt that he felt rather alone in defending or explaining. Uh, uh, claiming a place for the historical Russia, meaning essentially the Russian people at that table of nations. It sounds like, uh, in a sense, Solzhenitsyn was uh, more assertive or more insistent about policing boundaries, uh, intellectual boundaries in thinking, you know, Russia versus the Soviet leadership of Russia, or within Russia, the people of Russia and those who are governing it uh, than, you know, or he, he thought that he was more rigorous about that than, than others were. Um, I found uh, another line in the book really spoke to me about the way I think about uh, sort of Russia today and kind of Putin and the Kremlin. And I'd like to read a little bit uh, of it if I can. Um, he says, uh, he talks about, you know, Russia is a towering inconceivably vast state uh, seemingly menacing by its sheer size, richly endowed by nature, 
um, scary tales told about it by the initially infrequent foreign visitors, uh, and then Russia's own excessive, senseless military actions in Europe, and that Russia had always kept itself different in terms of faith, traditions, and way of life. Um, and then when he talks about Tsarist power, this is, this is what I thought sort of spoke very much about today's Russia. Um, Tsarist power had had its head in the clouds, learning none of the lessons of openness that had developed in the civilized world, either not understanding it or not deigning to make use of it to defend itself before society and to explain its actions. What, do we have to justify ourselves to whom? The sort of kind of prickly pride of power in Russia, which interestingly, you know, ordinary people don't seem to share that so much. They, they tend actually very much to like sort of talking about Russian culture and what Russia is and sharing that with, with foreigners. I, I, I'm sort of wondering, um, you know, I know it's a counterfactual and impossible, you know, what, what would Solzhenitsyn have made of the divide between the ruled and the rulers in Russia today, given his very careful intellectual distinctions between those things in the past? Well, just, just to be clear, and, 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 and that the passage you quoted, of course, he's disagreeing with that, with that uh, position of, of the rulers. Uh, he's mocking right. their right their presumed sense that oh we don't have to justify. He said that's crazy, that right right right. right. And so uh, of course that's that's that 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 uh, I don't we don't like this. Uh, it's too easy to jump to conclusions and to say he would have said this, he would have said that. But uh, clearly everything in his thinking suggests that he um, wants uh, openness, that he wants accountability, that he wants uh, local control over decisions. And not that. Um, let, let's be very clear. R Russia has not had a more passionate defender as a the concept of Russia in the last, however, in the last hundred years, perhaps. Let's say, or very few. But also, but also, Solzhenitsyn is a great critic of Russia uh, uh, as a uh, rancorless son of the Russian land. That's the, as a prisoner uh, 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 of Russia, if you will. For me, he claims that right for himself, and he claims the right. That patriotism includes seeing the sins of your fatherland or of your motherland, and 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 announcing them, and 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 asking her to change. And so he is a great critic of much in Russia's past. Another reason why these kind of claims that somehow monarchists or this whole idea that he wanted to return to the past. I mean, no no serious person would ever think about returning to the past. We're always moving forward. Uh, so he's he found a lot to dislike in Russia's past. And only that he wished that in the new Russia, post-communism, that some of the good things, which did exist in the old Russia, in terms of local self-government, uh, in terms of uh, not entirely banishing the uh, moral uh, or religious sphere from, from public life, um, and, and, and some other things could be continued. And uh, as far as Russia today, uh, uh, I think that to the extent that some of those uh, tendencies are um, at, at least uh, 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 that there is a chance that they are happening or beginning to happen, uh, that certainly he would welcome that. And to the extent that uh, there is still a great central control over, and particularly, you know, we think about it foreign policy, but particularly domestic and kind of domestic uh, governance of Russia is still so, so much whatever the center said. And then it's and, and that is something that he would never uh, that he never felt was a was a strong basis or frankly a fair basis on which to build this uh, a proper civic society. I think you're absolutely right, uh, Ignat. And and it's it's striking to me that he anticipates rather than assuming that a a future post Bolshevik leadership of Russia is going to necessarily. Uh, you know, either follow kind of his ideas about, about what the true Russia is or uh, go astray via some other ideology, right? He, he is very specific about his concern, which is that, uh, and, and again, I'll quote here, they're just waiting to pounce on a country that's been liberated for them and to run it using newspapers, their ideas, using a parliament whose members do not represent their own regions, using capital, of course. I mean, he is describing a kind of non-ideological corporatist uh, bureaucratic state, which, you know, one might argue that's, that's to the extent that there's a problem in Russian government, that's kind of it. And he nailed it, you know, uh, over 30 years ago. This is kind of amazing to me. 
Uh, Dan, did you want to comment on that? I mean, you've written a ton about these issues. Yeah, uh, I was going to say in those same pages that you you quoted liberally from, uh, Solzhenitsyn adds a few other things. One, he, he laments the weakness of an authentically civic tradition in Russia. And this is a part of Solzhenitsyn's thought that is insufficiently appreciated in the West. He gave a lot of thought during the time of his Western exile to, you know, this is, you know, from BTM1, the, the beautiful account of, uh, of, of cantonal liberty in, Sw in Switzerland, but uh, obviously could not simply be adopted in the same form in Russia. But the idea of democracy of small paces, democracy of the bottom up, not just plebiscitary, kind of meaningless plebiscitary elections every four years where no habits of, uh, of civic self-ruler develop. And he had a beautiful formulation, I believe in the same section about his own views on the rebirth of Russian national consciousness. And he spoke about, a, Ignat can correct me if I mangle the words, but a healthy, moderate, salutary Russian patriotism. And he says, we don't have that. We didn't have it in the past and we don't have it now. It doesn't mean that he thought Russia was the monster uh, I just read a new book called Russian Anxiety, you know, where, you know, the really quite interesting book making the case that for a long time now, a lot of people in the West have been filled with a kind of anxiety about eternal Russia. Uh, and there's one other thing that came up earlier. Solzhenitsyn did have allies in the Western Sovietological community, people who understood him and wrote sympathetically, shared many of his same concerns understood the difference between ideological um, uh, despotism and uh, a traditional authoritarianism, and certainly shared his view that many important and dramatic improvements and changes were being made in Russia in the period between 1860 and 1917. Conquest to some extent, we have very good relations with Leonard Shapiro, Donald Treadgold, uh, one could one could think of others, but they were a minority current, and I think some of them, like Treadgold or Malia, were open and sympathetic to some of uh, the deeper philosophical and cultural resonances of of uh, Solzhenitsyn's thought. And uh, but so it's not. I don't think Solzhenitsyn thought it was himself against the world, but I think in an existential way when you have sort of the, twi the, the twin millstones coming at you on a daily basis, on a weekly basis. Solzhenitsyn did feel that in a very existential way, that direct pressure, you know, and, but mainly remember from the book, he only wrote one response to his critics, uh, an essay from the early eighties called Our Pluralist. I mean, somebody like Andrei Senyavsky was uh, publishing a denunciation of Solzhenitsyn you know, every couple of months in the emigre press, in Paris, in French journals, several times in the New York Review, he was calling him an anti-Semite, a totalitarian, an autocrat, a man who believed, who had self-deified. I mean, it's pretty nasty stuff. And Solzhenitsyn largely remained quiet. I think when uh, Etkin published a piece calling him a Russian Ayatollah, uh, Solzhenitsyn wrote a brief and very effective response in the Jerusalem Post uh, called The Persian Rus, where he says, no, the, the author of the Gulag Archipelago does not know, want new camps, and nor does he have any admiration for clerical despotism. But I mean, Solzhenitsyn was getting this. I think it's really important for people, uh, listeners and, uh, and potential readers of this book to realize that this was a constant onslaught of, I, I, I'm gonna put it very, these weren't disputed questions. These were mendacities. These were absolute false uh, uh, attributions. They were claims were made about what Solzhenitsyn thought uh, that were not true. Uh, in an interview in 1989 with David Aikman in uh, Time Magazine, that's when Time Magazine used to have serious stuff in it. Uh, uh, Solzhenitsyn said, they never give any quotes. You know, he says, I'm, I've supposedly said this or endorsed this. So Yes, there was frustration, but I don't think Solzhenitsyn, I mean, Solzhenitsyn was fully aware that he had allies and he had sympathetic readers. Um, and when he, for example, when he went to London in 1983 
to give and receive the Templeton Prize, Templeton Prize address. Uh, Malcolm Mugridge and Bernard Levin, two very sympathetic, intelligent journalists, did wonderful interviews with them. So he he uh, he was he wasn't quite as isolated as some of that rhetoric might suggest, and he had some trusted translators and all of that, like Harry Willits. Yeah, yeah, it's really fascinating um, in in 2020 to read this this inner monologue of a public figure who feels he has a duty. Uh, who feels he has a public, uh, who feels he has a kind of historic uh, role uh, that, that he is, this, if you will, the archivist and the preserver of uh, a real Russian history that's being actively destroyed. Um, and yet, it, in 2020 especially, uh, amid the kind of um, repeat waves of what has come to be called cancel culture, you know, kind of when a public figure is identified as uh, not hewing to some necessary orthodoxy that their platform, they should be deplatformed, right? They should be sort of obliterated. And it's very interesting to watch Solzhenitsyn wrestle with this. I think the anti-Semitism accusations are probably the most pointed example, but I think that there are others uh, where he kind of wrestles with, you know, do I have to do these kind of public mea culpas or something in order to publicly show that I'm not what my critics say I am, even when there's no evidence that I am? Uh, which is, you know, very much the, the, the dilemma of cancel culture and deplatforming uh, today. If you don't uh, play the play the game, basically, uh, you know, you can be subject to these sorts of attacks. Ignat, uh, I'm I'm just curious to get your take. Um, you know, you are also a public figure today, and and uh, so you must have some. You know, maybe you stay stay wisely off of social media, but you must have some kind of sense of of the just the enormous. Uh, pain and anguish uh, that go with these types of assaults uh, and, and what this meant for your father. Yes, it's, it's it, shocking. It's still shocking. And I think maybe it's in 2020, it's uh, now shocking more people uh, in this country as, as more people experience this kind of uh, uh, treatment or as uh, which one hopes is still very few. Uh, ultimately, individuals, but 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 the phenomenon is is uh, is profoundly disturbing, uh, profoundly illiberal, uh, profoundly at odds with those principles that uh, one one has always thought uh, uh, underpin uh, the, uh, the American uh, experiment and the the American alternative to the rest of the world. So uh, uh, yes, it's it's uh, it's it's troubling. It's. Uh, uh, Quite amazing to see, uh, as, as you say, to, to to be working it or reading this book uh, in 2020, looking back and to see that, uh, in a sense, it's it's nothing new because it's a totalitarian impulse. Ultimately, not to not to say that America is there yet, and hopefully, hopefully, never will come close. But this notion that if I don't, basically, if I don't like what you're saying, shut up, and if you don't shut up, you're you're canceled, you're deplatformed, you're jailed you're executed eventually it's just a natural progression so but but this idea that rather than engage in a, in in that uh, you know in the respectful dialogue and for Solzhenitsyn remember too of course in the book it may it may seem that he's um, you know extremely concerned with 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 with, with fighting back or with he, having his voice heard the, the the reality is that um of course this book in a way is precisely the document of uh what he didn't say during all those years uh, for reasons that, as you say, he felt it's not my job to to defend myself and to tell people who I'm not. Secondly, I'm, if I'm going to do that, I will never finish writing The Red Wheel, his grand historical epic. So he was laser focused on his work. And so he knew if he starts engaging in this endless back and forth, uh, then his work will, will tremendously suffer. And so and it's also very interesting, I think, for readers to, to think that just like the oak and the calf, his preceding memoir, the memoir of his years in, the, in Russia, in the Soviet Union. And uh, Between Two Millstones is written in these um, uh, uh, discrete uh, segments of time. Uh, he's writing synchronously with the events. He sits down and after four years, after five years, and he writes down everything that's happened uh, during these last five years. And then he puts it away and he comes back another five years later, another six years later, and he updates 
Uh, and he says, and this is what, this is the, now this is the continu continuation. And I think what's interesting about that is it, is it leaves less room for, for self-justification or for, or for making it seem that, oh, that's what I thought all along. He very, very honestly, I think presents, this is what it seemed to me. And then five years later, he says, you know, I used to think this, but now I see that's not the case or whatever the case may be. And so he very, very openly gives us a window into, into his, yes, into his, hopes and then his anxieties and his and his fears and, and his 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 failures or what he sees as his failures uh for example to convince the west about about uh about russia um uh, and uh very interesting how it's how it's put together you got to, to stay with you for just a second um how how did all of these concerns manifest in his decisions about the family uh, the things that affected you very directly. I mean, one one line I couldn't help thinking about, especially because uh, we spend a lot of our uh, lives in Vermont, was you know he felt this assault, if you will, from the kind of like uh, overly socialist, uh, in his words, uh, you know, thinking of the uh, the educational establishment, the public school teachers, and so on. I mean, even though this this place had given him a, a home, he never felt at home. And so then I wondered uh, later on when he talks about you know sending you abroad. For education, whether that was in part a, a way of shielding you from what he thought were the dangers here, um, or if there were other uh, sorts of things you felt like he did to kind of respond to this environment that had that had dangers in it for these young lives that he was responsible for. No, I, I wouldn't say so, Matt. Especially because actually the public schools in Vermont were at that time uh, still perfectly. Uh, you know, perfectly reasonable, did not have a, a kind of a, any kind of a militant um, a political agenda, one might say, just the normal, uh, the normal, maybe certain normal, typical biases of that, that, that we all bring to everything. And certainly teachers uh, have their own, but uh, it was, interestingly, it was that first school that we were sent to as an attempt to avoid public schools for the reason that uh, inner city Russian friends uh, of, uh, of my parents in uh, New York, in Boston, uh, in Chicago said, no, 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 you, you can't send your kids to the public schools in, in, in America. There are these public schools, this is the middle of the 70s. I'm not sure things are better now, but maybe in some ways they are. You can't send your kids to public school. So I said, okay, well, what now, of course, in Vermont, the situation was completely different. But with that warning in mind, uh, they sent us to this kind of alternative uh, half school, half farm, kind of a typical thing for the time. But we very quickly, we, were, we would come home at a, at a young age, but we knew enough to say, these guys are nuts. Because they uh, a commune by accident. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. And, and they were very much, uh, you know, if not Stalinist, then certainly Leninist. And uh, not, of course, in the sense of killing people, but, but in their foolish foolish notion that uh, uh, communism is uh, to be to be to be fervently desired so and then the public schools and then as far as going abroad uh, that was uh, both for my brother and for me essentially coincidental and uh, for my brother he was a year early to go to college and so it was a chance to kind of instead of that gap year to have to have um, uh, two years of, of, of really rigorous education at uh, a great uh, English uh, public school, as they say, which is actually a private school, uh, Eton. And in my case was uh, to go to study with my dream teacher uh, of piano in London. And, and so my parents were nothing but supportive and, and ready to let us go forth and, 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 and receive that education if we felt strongly, which, which we both did at that time. So I would say that was a, a positive measure rather than a preventive. You know, before we before we started uh, the stream, we were talking uh, a little bit. Um, I think I think you weren't quite on, Ignat. Uh, Dan and I were talking about you know sort of in what century Solzhenitsyn might have felt the most comfortable, and it did strike me that among many other uh, commonalities, you know, sending one's children abroad and specifically to Europe for education was very kind of nineteenth-century Russian mm -hmm. intelligentsia experience, and I don't know. So somehow that resonated with me. Um, we, we have about 20 minutes remaining. I want to make sure that we cover, uh, you know, the perestroika era, era which is included 
uh, in the memoir. And, and so I want to go uh, to a line he wrote, um, again, I think, you know, very piercingly uh, uh, accurate in its perception and, uh, and, and quite pessimistic um, about Gorbachev and his reforms, although there, there's positive language as well. Uh, he talks about how basically the old nomenclature remain in their positions, even allowing them to use the nation's wealth to line their pockets, a constant series of paltry, self-seeking, cautious steps to benefit the party, uh, and how Gorbachev is everyone's darling, uh, and so it hardly seemed urgent to seek the paths of fruitful reform. So, uh, Dan, he's he's very pessimistic about reform while the the Bolsheviks are still in power under Gorbachev. Um, did he did he feel that the project of reform in Russia uh, was, in a sense, impossible? That it was that it was doomed? I mean, what what would he have made of kind of the Russia that is and changing it into the Russia? that should be or that once was? Well, you know, Solzhenitsyn was very prescient and astute on all these matters. Going back to the maligned letter uh, to the Soviet leaders, uh, there he had, um, uh, by the way, he was not laying out his ideal of what a free Russia ought to look like, far from it. But he was, as he put it in another essay, how does one come down from the icy slope of totalitarianism? And so he made specific recommendations. And the first was there had to be an emphatic repudiation of the ideological basis of the Soviet state for reasons he brilliantly explained that whether it was in the agricultural sector, the persecution of the most decent citizens, the religious minded and all that, the absence of authentic glass freedom of discussion, not just of ideas, but of issues, you know, like the structural problems with the economy. And, and so, um, Solzhenitsyn, he also became more and more uh, convinced of the danger of a repeat of February uh, 17, a kind of revolutionary enthusiasm that would not be connected to the constructive building of a, of a viable Russian future or viable Russian institutions. So um, yes, and I think he knew that Gorbachev was not willing to genuinely repudiate the Leninist foundations of the Soviet state. And that was very important for Solzhenitsyn. And by the way, that judgment was reciprocated when uh, Novi Mir announced at the end of 1988, just one line on the back of an issue that for, in a forthcoming issue, they would be publishing Solzhenitsyn. Gorbachev asked for, demanded, stamped his feet, stopped his feet, and demanded that 500,000 copies of that magazine be pulped. Uh, but uh, I think Solzhenitsyn was very struck by the thoughtlessness that accompanied Glasnost. You know, in the letter to the Soviet leader, he had given, I think, a great deal of thought to how one, in the title of another one of his books, in this case, an edited collection, how one comes out from under the rubble of a, of a collapsing communist totalitarianism. And I think there were, uh, Glasnost for him was too ad hoc. It was informed by too many illusions. And I think as the quotation, the nice quotation you read suggests, it was still dominated and informed by self-seeking apparatchiks, you know, who did not have the interest of the Russian people at heart. At heart. So, even those passages early on in the, you know, the, the, during Glasnost's late age, you can already see that Solzhenitsyn is aware of the possibility that, that of, of the Russian 1990s, of the nomenclatura re officially rejecting communism while continuing to adopt an essentially predatory attitude toward the people and the nation as a whole. So I think I think studying Solzhenitsyn's reaction during that period is uh, very important, and it it helps us see instead of the Gorbomania you had in the West, which was so superficial, and instead of I think this blind uh, tendency to see Yeltsin as the embodiment of democratic capitalist reform, I think Solzhenitsyn saw that there was less of a transfer of power than many in the West believed. And there was the persistence 
of old modes of Bolshevik thinking. Peter Redway, the, uh, the Russian Sovietologist, had written a book for the Brookings Institute in the 90s where he said, made the same point Solzhenitsyn made that the reforms of the 90s were very top down. They were neo-Bolshevik. The same spirit of abruptness and centralization and command uh, 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 which led to the uh, uh, impoverishment of many uh, ordinary Russians and the loss of their savings, et cetera. So uh, I suppose a certain kind of reader could read these sections in between two Millstone's book two and say, here he goes again, nothing pleases him. He's a critic of everyone and everything, but I'm struck by how much thought and indeed prescience underlie those analyses in the final sections of the book. Yeah, thanks, Dan. I, I, I tend to think he gets it exactly right at a time when you're, you're correct. No one, few others did. Uh, Peter Redaway, by the way, was a former director of the Kennan Institute. So mm -hmm. uh, I did not know that, but I, I'm, I'm happy to praise his book from that period. Um, uh, Matt, may I jump right. in with just a Yes, Ignat, before you do, though, let me, I, I do want to go to you on this. Uh, just quickly, uh, since the, the apparently the beginning of the, the webcast was interrupted due to an outage. So for those uh, who missed that, we have a discount code for buying the book. Just email Kenan at WilsonCenter.org and we can send that to you. And also, if you have questions, please email them to Kenan at Wilson.org uh, anytime in the next uh, 20 minutes or so or, uh, or tweet to at Kenan Institute. Yes, Ignat, please. Yeah, just just to jump on that to, to to add that as far as what social needs and may or may not have been expecting at that time of Pitistroika and Glasnost and the the potential the potential time of great change, uh, you know he two things one is is I think you've quoted and you've noted that he was hardly uh, 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 full of optimism and 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 he he was anxious about the way th so many ways that it could go wrong. And of course, that's in contrast to the what one constantly read in the press. Again, evaluating Solzhenitsyn's position or identifying his position as, oh, he's got this rosy view of Russia, and he's just, you know, isn't he going? You know, we Western journalists, for example, who are on the ground in in in, in Moscow, we know that when he comes back, he'll be disappointed. I mean, gibberish, because he he knew exactly. Well, being away, but 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 he followed so closely. He wasn't expecting some kind of a. Uh, a rosy 19th century Russia, which wasn't a rosy thing anyway. But the point is that uh, if anything, he was pessimistic. And then the other point is that part of the uh, anxiousness uh, and excitement in that, and one can see that in chapter 13, uh, the, the warm breeze blowing from, it was a warm breeze blowing from home. And part of that has to do with the power of personality. And here Solzhenitsyn is really diametrically opposite from Tolstoy uh, in that Solzhenitsyn's research is his study of the revolution and really of history in general led him to believe that personality plays often a decisive role in world events. And if that might even be true of an American democracy and the role that a Lincoln, a Washington, uh, a Reagan, an FDR plays in the course of American history, how much more so in the case of a undemocratic system where uh, and that was the point of the letter to Soviet leaders, is that if these guys, in that case, you know, Bre Brezhnev and the rest of them, if they chose to go a different path, they could. They could just choose as, as that slightly um, more, more freedom that he was suggesting. And, and that was the big question about Gorbachev and then about Yeltsin and then about Putin. These guys really have a choice. Will They really have power, too much power, obviously, but will they use it maybe for something good? Can they be convinced? Or is it only going to be about corruption or about keeping communist power or about keeping personal power, et cetera, et cetera? So, you know, uh, I want to make sure we, we get to the topic of US Russia relations, uh, because obviously it's, it's very much uh, front of mind today as we have perhaps a chance to pivot or perhaps just a continuing kind of downward spiral uh, in, in 2021. Um, and I'm struck by, you know, so many op missed opportunities uh, in the era in which Solzhenitsyn was perceptively writing, uh, you know, selectively, obviously, putting his thoughts into the public domain, but certainly consulting privately with, you know, almost every leader, you know, I mean, Reagan was reaching out to him, Senate leaders were reaching out to him. Um, and, and yet he has this line 
that seems like like so much of what he writes and it may be a, just a tone in his writing or it may really reflect his his state of mind um uh that that's almost despairing you know he says in the states racism is not permissible but even respectable people will allow themselves mudslinging at russia as a whole and at russians as a nation obviously speaking to the phenomenon we spoke of earlier of sort of conflating russia and soviet union and so on but there's kind of a deeper problem evident in that which is that you know, one way or another, it seems like in the United States, it's okay to demonize Russia. It's okay to put Russia in the category of enemies, uh, as you would, you know, rogue regimes and terrorists and, and all of those. It really seems like, again, you know, decades ago, he was onto something because we have seen that in spades uh, in the last several years. And, and so I, I kind of want to open the topic for both of you of, of the U.S.-Russia relationship today, uh, and you know what we can glean from Solzhenitsyn's insights to try to try to manage it better. Uh, Dan, why don't we start with you? Or yeah, one. no, no. I think that's uh, I think that's really at the the center of things we ought to be thinking about in terms of of the relationships, the bilateral relationship between the United States and Russia, and the larger relationship between the West and Russia. Um, I've noticed, for example, and I think this is something that did bother Solzhenitsyn and will continue to bother him, even in a discussion, for example, of the levels, the nature and level of totalitarian repression in the Soviet Union. We have, you know, let's say collectivization and famine. Collectivization was a phenomena that occurred uh, in the Volga region, in the North Caucasus, in the Kuban, and, and very significantly in the Ukraine. But in academic and journalistic and political discussions of those events, there's very little discussion of collectivization. There's very little discussion of the earlier uh, deaths and famines politically induced that accompanied war communism. And in most locutions and formulations, it's simply the Ukrainian famine. And in some versions, it's an event done by Russians to Ukrainians. And Solzhenitsyn rather violently reacted to that, not because he was denying these terrible crimes that he had written so well about in the Gulag Archipelago and elsewhere, but there's a tendency to no longer perceive Russians as among the principal victims of the Soviet regime. And I think that's a real problem. And I see that every day in articles in the popular press and even in scholarly articles and that kind of thing. So, um, and this is why there's, there's a small recurring note in both volumes of Between Two Millstones. Solzhenitsyn had an allergy. He was really upset by what he discovered about the captive nations resolution of 1959. And you might say, well, who, who, who pays attention? We still celebrate the captive nations. But if you read the captive nations resolution, it is appalling. It was really written by a group of Ukrainian nationalists and all of the countries who were oppressed by communism are victims of Russian imperialism, including Tibet, including made up countries like Kazakhia, you know, in this kind of thing. But again, what's missing is any sense that Bolshevism entailed the frontal assault on all the pillars of historic Russia, the independent intellectual class, the church, the peasantry, among others. And so I think for Solzhenitsyn, the tendency to see Russia as aggressor, to see Russia as the agent of not only imperialism, but totalitarian repression of the first order and to completely ignore the suffering of the Russian people over seven or eight decades. Um, I think he certainly believed those kinds of misjudgments or misapprehensions had a lot to do with our tendency to see eternal Russia as nothing Russia could do or be could really moderate her status as historic enemy. So I think, uh, I mean, that's a big historical picture, but I think those kinds of considerations really did undergird Solzhenitsyn's 
fear that um, that uh, the that too many elements in the West were committed to perceiving. He, I mean, he had a complete allergy for people like Robert Tucker, who, when they saw Stalin, only saw Ivan the Terrible and were very quiet about, you know, the links between Stalinism and Marxist-Leninism, which of course has uh, uh, oh something to to Western philosophy and ideology too. It's not specifically Russian. So. Um, Yes, and on the other hand, we, we should remember that in several interviews, Solzhenitsyn made very clear that he thought uh, an improvement of relations between Russia and the West was very important. He thought we had, uh, not only did we belong to, in some sense, the same broad field of civilization, despite differences between the East and West, but he, saw, he thought there were dangers, I think, from China perhaps from Islamic fanaticism, uh, but he certainly in his Forbes interview and elsewhere alluded to the practical necessity in his last interview in Der Spiegel in July, 2007, the practical necessity of a real rapprochement between East and West. So one of the legends I think about Solzhenitsyn is that in some profound sense, he was anti-Western. He was not anti-Western. He saw himself as a critical friend of the West. Yeah, you know what? Ignat, yeah. I, I just want to take the last couple of minutes here and, and give Ignat a, the final word. Um, but but let me just point out in, in two very specific kind of policy domains that have arguably in the last several years gone exactly in the wrong direction, uh, I am guessing that Solzhenitsyn uh, would have been aligned with uh, kind of Russian dissenters today. Uh, he recently heard in, in testimony of the European Parliament, the argument sort of stop uh, uh, stop uh, levying sanctions on the whole of the Russian population. Uh, this was Russian dissidents who were saying this, you know, just target the figures in the regime. Uh, and of course, you know, the, the Western position has been to basically sanction uh, entire Russian sectors, the entire economy. Uh, and, and then two is also in, in study of Russia and in investment in knowing and understanding Russia, because that's exactly how not knowing Russia, not knowing Russian history is exactly how you elide figures as different as Stalin and you know Ivan the Terrible uh, or 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 other mistakes in not distinguishing those those intellectual domains that Solzhenitsyn did. Ignat, final word is yours on on this or on anything else you'd like to comment on. During my childhood as a Russian growing up in the West, as a Russian growing up in America, as a Russian American, however you want to put it, uh, it was clear to me and to my brothers and to, I think, most people, uh, certainly coming from Russia, but probably to, 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 to anybody who thought about it um, and to ordinary Americans that once and when the Soviet regime and communism in general would collapse or would be defeated, when that day would come, no matter when, when that day would come, then things would, the, the kind of a natural equilibrium and a natural friendship, if you will, would be almost automatically restored. And jumping to today, I do find that to be the case that despite all that you might say unnecessary and, 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 and overwrought drama of the last, well, 15, 20 years now uh, between Russia and America, I think most ordinary Americans uh, that I speak to, that, I, that write me or that meet me or that come to my concerts or that I have interaction with that are not experts, uh, in any particular uh, uh, way about this field, but they have that intuitive sense that, well, things have changed in Russia, maybe not enough and maybe not, but things have changed. It's not the Soviet dragon anymore. It's not the totalitarian system. So why can't we get along? That's the dominant sense I get from, from ordinary Americans uh, and uh, certainly from ordinary Russians too. So what the, the big surprise for me, but not to my father evidently, uh, is that uh, the people who matter, if you will, the people who are in charge of those decisions, at least on this side in the US, the, the experts and the policymakers and, and those in government and think tanks and so forth and so forth, largely seem to cleave to that notion that, well, it doesn't really matter. I mean, I guess people don't say that out loud, maybe explicitly, but the underlying sense is, okay, something changed over there, but in any case, we still pursue our same strategic kind of goal. And, uh, and so that is what I think is really a, cent a central, if not the central theme of the book, 
uh, that prescience that Solzhenitsyn already saw, this is where we're headed, and that's bad news. And the final point, because it can't be stressed enough, yes, Solzhenitsyn is championing Russia. Yes, he's frustrated uh, with, with the West uh, for, uh, and as you know, almost as he sees this developing, not giving Russia a chance, not giving Russia a fair shake, uh, blaming Russia for all the world's ills. Yes, but at the same time, uh, he is so uh, harsh, uh, you might say, on Russia's faults, Russia's self-inflicted wounds. And as, as, as Dan Mahoney has said, yes, Russians must be seen in any fair way as, yes, the kind of the first and largest, if only by numbers, victims of communism, but at the same time, as perpetrators. Uh, in, it, in other words, Solzhenitsyn clearly studying the Red Wheel, studying the revolution, clearly says, clearly believes we brought it upon ourselves. So there's no sense of Russia was somehow pure and sacred and all of that stuff and someone else, some evil force from the outside. No, Russians did it. We did it to ourselves. And the, the primary bl uh, blunt force and the heaviest responsibility lies on Russians. And Russians have to fix that problem. And Rus Russians have to repent. And Russians, as he said many, many times, have to repent in front of all of these nations. No question. So that's the context in which he also asks for, uh, for Russia to be viewed with at least with, with, with sympathy uh, and, and uh, within a, with a, uh, a search for, okay, how do we move forward in a way that's fair, fair to everyone? Well, those are, those are wonderful words to conclude on. And I think one of many excellent reasons uh, to read the book. Uh, email us, uh, anybody who's listening, uh, you can get a discount code of 40%. The book is Between Two Millstones, book two, Exile in America, 1978 to 1994 from Notre Dame Press. And it has been an honor and a pleasure to be joined by Ignat Solzhenitsyn and Dan Mahoney today. Thank you both so much. And thank you, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you, Matthew.